Good morning. How about them Wapahani Raiders, huh? Oh, yeah. We were there, weren't we, Pam? Has anyone ever heard of the Freshman 15? That's the average amount of weight that kids gain their freshman year of college. Maybe it's being on their own for the first time, eating whatever they want, whenever they want. There's probably some other things that probably contribute to that weight gain as well, I'm guessing. Has anybody ever heard of the freshman year of marriage, 15? It's the amount of weight I have gained this year as I approach my one-week anniversary next week. 15 pounds. My wife is a great cook. I love to eat. Has anyone ever been to the Maidrite place in Greenville, Ohio? Oh, yeah, some of you. These sandwiches at this place are the bomb. They're loose meat sandwiches in Greenville, Ohio that are just amazing. And I hold the mock family record for eating nine of them in a single setting. You don't have to applaud. I'm very humble. You know, there's another time I did some work for a nice older lady and she paid me with three pecan pies. Like Andy Griffith here. Three pecan pies. And I ate all three of them in one week by myself. Now, I'm not a dietitian, or a, but I'm assuming that probably wasn't very good for me. But the bottom line is I have an appetite. I do. I always have. But as I get older, I realize that I need to try to be a little more responsible with how much I eat, what I eat. Because my appetite can be very harmful to me. How I control my appetite can determine the quality of my life, my health, my ability to play with my kids and grandkids, my lifespan. And the truth is, and this is what we're going to be focusing on today, appetites have the potential to determine the direction and quality of our lives. Appetites have the potential to determine the direction and quality of our lives. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So appetites have the potential to determine the direction and quality of our lives. And this is true for any appetites. You see, food is not the only thing that we crave. Food is not the only thing that we as humans hunger for. We have many appetites, and some of these you don't really think about much. But we have an appetite for acceptance. We want to be accepted. 
that desire, that hunger to be accepted makes us do things that maybe we wouldn't normally do. For you teenagers in here, it's maybe that what will cause you to start smoking. The people you're hanging with, maybe they're doing it. And you want to fit in with them, so you smoke. Or you drink. Maybe it's being pressured to have sex. And you want that guy or you want that girl to like you. So you feel pressured to do something that maybe you don't want to do. Something that you know isn't part of God's plan for your life right now. Maybe it's a conversation about somebody. Gossip. Making fun of somebody. Maybe joining in with other people as they're ridiculing somebody else. And then you want to be part of the gang. You want to be one of the guys. You want to be one of the girls. So you join in. Knowing that you shouldn't be doing it. Knowing that what you're doing is not right. You see, that's an appetite for it acceptance and it determines a direction that you're taking there's an appetite to succeed and it can be very powerful you see it's that desire to reach a certain goal a desire to move up the ladder to work harder and harder to get that big corner office Chris talked about this last week. So you put in the long hours. And man, you focus on that one thing. And you devote most of your time to it. Until one day you get that corner office. And you realize your kids have grown up. And your marriage has collapsed. See, life kind of passed you by and it wasn't a fair trade. And you're not ever going to get those things back. They're gone. You see, that's the appetite for success. And it can determine the direction and quality of your life. Sex. That's a powerful appetite. Did you know that 68% of young men and 18% of young women use porn at least once a week. The key word there is at least. You know that 25% of searches online are of erotic content. Over 60 million people do porn, pornographic searches each day. You wouldn't believe some of the statistics I found researching this. But can it determine the direction of your life? The divorce rate in this country is just over 50%. The American Academy of matrimonial lawyers report that 56% of divorce cases, that's over half of all divorce cases, involve one party having 
an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. But can it determine the quality of your life? 21 million adults and children are bought and sold worldwide in sex trafficking. Our appetites contribute to a sex industry that generates $97 billion a year. And if you're anywhere in any of these statistics, you're being part of the problem. You're feeding the industry. You know, we all have appetites, whether it's this desire to eat something that you shouldn't eat or say something that you shouldn't say or do something that you shouldn't do. And appetites are powerful. They are. And they have the potential to determine the direction and quality of our lives. Appetites shipwreck and they sideline more individuals than anything else in this world. You rule it or it rules you. I'm going to give you three things you need to know about appetites. Number one, God created them and sin distorted them. God created them and sin distorted them. Genesis 1 verse 29 says, then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. So God created the appetite. Genesis 2 verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So you know the story there. Adam goes into a deep sleep. God takes rib from Adam. Adam wakes up, kind of looks around, looks at her and says, whoa, man. She became woman. God created the appetite for companionship. You see, all the appetites that you experience, God created them. God created them, but sin distorted them. The second thing, appetites are never fully satisfied. Appetites are never fully satisfied. Job 20 verse 20. Says, surely he will have no respite from his craving. He cannot save himself by his treasure. See, appetites are never fully satisfied. And you know this because you've sat down at a meal and you've eaten and ate until you was completely stuffed and you didn't think you could move or eat anymore. And then they say, would you like dessert? Oh, of course. So you eat more. Appetites are never fully satisfied. And you know what? It's the same way with sex. It's the same way with stuff. You see that lie that you will be tempted to believe for the rest of your life is that there is something out there 
there is someone out there that can fully satisfy your appetite and there is not. There's never enough touchdowns. There's never enough kisses. There's never enough awards. There's never enough attention. There's never enough shoes. You never get to that place where you say, ah, I think I'm done. That never happens. Because appetites are never fully satisfied. Number three. Your appetite always whispers now, never later. Your appetites always whisper now, never later. Proverbs 14, verse 29 says, Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. You see, appetites always say, trade the ultimate for the immediate. When I was 18, I got this brilliant idea one cold winter evening that I should be living somewhere where it was warm. It was a good idea. Never mind that the furthest I'd ever been away from home was probably Portland, Jay County. But I had an idea. And I decided that I should be living somewhere where it was warm, where there was sun, where there was ocean. I wanted to move to Hawaii. Could have been the Magnum P.I. reruns that I was watching. But I had an idea. So I quit my job. I bought a ticket. I packed my bags, and I headed for Hawaii. Keep in mind, I'd never flown before. I had no idea how to get around in an airport, especially one as big as Atlanta or Dallas-Fort Worth. That was scary to an 18-year-old. I'd never flown before, so I was scared on the plane. And it was like 16 hours of pure terror. But I made it. I made it to Honolulu. And then I started to wonder, where the heck am I going to live? How am I going to get around? And I only had like $300 saved left anyways. I think I should have thought that one through a little bit better. But you know, we see stuff like this all the time. Maybe not quite like that, but we see stuff like this. The whole grass is greener on the other side. And you don't always think about later. You think about now. You make decisions to satisfy an appetite, not realizing that that's going to affect something later on or who it might affect later on. So you trade the ultimate for the immediate. So can you see how appetites can determine the direction and the quality 
of your lives. Do you see how it can impact the plans that God has for your life? What God wants to use you to accomplish? Because God has huge plans for us. He does. God has huge plans for your life, for all of our lives. And some of you have no idea how God wants to use you to accomplish His plans. You have no idea how God wants to work through you to impact your schools, to impact your workplaces, to impact your families, your community, your city. You have no idea. And I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss what God has planned. A lot of people miss it. Nobody plans on missing it, but a lot of people miss it. And I'm going to tell you a powerful story about missing it. This story is found in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 25. It's the story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Now Esau, he was a detective and he drove a red Ferrari and lived with a guy named Higgins. Now, I'm still thinking of Magnum P.I. there. Esau and Jacob were twins, but they were very different. You see, Esau was the warrior. He was a warrior. He was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He, he was what you call a man's man. And Jacob, on the other hand, was kind of a mama's boy. Jacob loved to cook. Jacob didn't really like to go outside very much. So these two were very, very different. Now Esau was the oldest. Even though I told you they were twins, Esau came out first. And that is what brings tension to this story. You see, the centerpiece of this whole story is the idea of a birthright. Now, a birthright's really not a part of our culture, but a birthright was something that was granted to the oldest son that was born into a family. No matter what that son was like, the oldest, the firstborn, got the birthright. Now, with this birthright came three very important things. If you got the birthright, you got a double portion of the inheritance. Meaning you got at least twice as much as your brothers and sisters. You were going to be the richest of the kids. And if you came from a wealthy family like Jacob and Esau, it means a whole lot of money. Another thing with a birthright, you got to be the judge of the family. You see, once your parents died, if there was any disagreements with the siblings, you got to be the judge. This wasn't a democracy. You said, here is what we are going to do, and it had to be done. So with this birthright also came power. Another thing, there was a blessing that came with the birthright. It was believed that God would bless the owner of the birthright. There was going to be a blessing from God to who had the birthright. 
So in the middle of this story is a desire for the younger brother to take the birthright from the older brother. And this sets up drama. This sets up tension in this story. So here's the story. Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, remember that's what he did. Esau came in from the open country, famished. So we have the appetite right there. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Now pause here for a second. Because if anybody in here has an older brother or siblings, you know that the older brother never gets anything from the younger brother. It's always the younger brothers that get like the hand-me-downs. Everything goes down to them. But every once in a while, and this is very rarely, but every once in a while, the older brother wants something from the younger brother. And when this happens, you kind of just kind of relish in that moment. You think, man, he needs me. Or she needs me. And this can become a major moment of negotiation. These moments are so rare that you just kind of got to go for it. You go big or you go home. You think of the most valuable thing to negotiate, and then you just kind of work your way down. So the older brother in this story, he goes to Jacob, and he says, I want some of that stew. And younger brother goes, okay, this is a rare moment. What can I take for this stew? Let's start with the most valuable thing. I'll take your birthright. Next verse, verse 31, it says, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, this is where the story starts to get a little bit strange. Because from our perspective, we have to ask, who in their right mind would trade their birthright for a bowl of soup? I mean, who would do that? Who would trade future wealth? Who would trade future power? Who would trade future blessings for something as temporary as a bowl of soup? Who would do that? And the answer to that question is you might. You might. Some of you actually have. Maybe some of you are right now. I see people do it all the time. You trade a relationship for a bottle. You trade a relationship for a habit. You trade a relationship for another woman or another man. You trade away years of going to the ball games, of going to recitals for something that's not even there anymore or for someone that may not even be there anymore. So who would trade their birthright for a bowl of soup. People do it all the time. 
And you have no idea what God might use you to accomplish in this world. Keep following me here. Story goes, verse 32. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? About to die? I need that. What good is a birthright to me? He walked in under his own power. He's about to die. I've got to have that. I've got to drive that. I've got to wear that. I'll die if I don't have it. What good is a birthright to me? It's worth a lot. And somehow, in that moment, Esau lost sight of how valuable that birthright is. This is an interesting thing here. Psychologists, they tell us that when your appetite gets exaggerated, when it gets stimulated, something actually happens in our brains. Whatever the appetite, when you get locked in on something, when your appetite gets engaged, when it gets jacked up, something actually happens in your brain. And it's called impact bias. It's called impact bias. And impact bias takes a simple appetite and it magnifies it out of proportion. It takes a simple little appetite and it just magnifies it out of proportion. When you go shopping, people who market, they understand what impact bias does, that it tricks your brain. It tells your brain, man, this thing, this person, this experience is going to be extraordinarily satisfying. It exaggerates the satisfaction that you're going to receive when you get it. When you get locked in on something, your brain, it lies to you. And it tells you, man, this will be better than ever. That's why you have buyer's remorse. You think, man, I've got to have it. I've got to have this. And then you get it. And you get it home. Two weeks later, you're looking at it. And the credit card bill comes in. And you think, why did I do this? Impact bias. You see, it was presented in such a way that your brain said, whoa. This is going to be Awesome. But then it was just okay. That's impact bias. The other thing that happens in your brain is called focalism. It's called focalism. And that focuses our minds on one thing and blurs out everything else. Focuses our minds on one thing, blurs everything else out. I mean, think back. Think about your, your first junior high or middle school crush. Oh, it was all you could think about. Everything else, everybody else in class, they were blurred out. The teacher was blurred out. He was oblivious to everything else that was going on. You see, your brain has the ability to put everything else around you completely out of focus. Except for that one item. Except for that one thing or that one person 
or that one experience. Your brain changes when your appetite is engaged. And this happens to all of us. We have all experienced this. But do you see how dangerous this can be? That's why appetites can be so dangerous. They have the potential to determine the direction of our lives. Keep following me in this story. So you have Esau. And his appetite for food is engaged. Bam, he's locked in on it. Verse 33 says, but Jacob said, swear to me first. So he, Esau, swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Now, this is the part of the story that I wish I had a remote and I could just hit pause. Just pause this story right here. I wish I could just show up in it. I wish I could magically appear somehow in this story. Right before he said, all right, I'll trade my birthright. And I'd say, wait a minute, Esau. Man, Esau, time out here. Let's think this thing through before you do it. Because I have to tell you something, Esau. Man, let me tell you something here. Esau, you are going to have 12 sons. Each one of these sons are going to have a family. Esau, a few years from then, this family of yours, all 12 sons and their families, they're going to go to Egypt. Their sons are going to become a nation of slaves. Keep following me here, Esau. They're going to be in slavery for 400 years. They're going to become a mighty, mighty nation. They are going to become God's chosen people. And they're all going to be a part of your lineage. Esau, listen to me here. You've got to understand this. This entire nation of people that came from your body will be God's chosen people. And after 400 years, God's going to raise up a guy named Moses. Esau, God's going to raise up a deliverer named Moses. And Moses isn't going to know God's name. In fact, this whole nation, Esau, that's going to come from you, they're not going to know God's name. And God is going to introduce himself. God is going to introduce himself to this guy, Esau, that's related to you, named Moses. And Esau, listen. Esau, listen to how the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, listen to how God introduces himself to Moses. Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. God is going to introduce himself with your name unless you trade your birthright for a bowl of soup. 
Esau, 2,000 years from this moment, God, through your lineage, is going to send his son into the world to save not just your family, not just the nation that will be called Israel, but to save the entire world. Everyone will have the potential to have eternal life through his son, and he comes through you, Esau. And one of his followers will be named Matthew. Matthew, a tax collector. He's going to write a story about this man named Jesus. It's going to be a best-selling book. You don't know what a book is, Esau? It's not important right now. Not really even a book. It's a story. It's called the book of Matthew. And when Matthew introduces the greatest story that will ever be told in the history of stories... Here is how he is going to start his book. Abraham begot Isaac, begot Esau. From Esau came the Messiah, the Son of God. Man, Esau, I know you're hungry. But do you want to trade all that for a bowl of soup? And if you do... God will introduce himself to Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and your little brother Jacob. Matthew will introduce the Savior through Jacob. And I'm guessing, in that moment, just the knowledge of what God would have done the knowledge of what God could have done would have stopped him dead in his tracks. But I wasn't there to hit pause and to help him think through his future. And friends, nobody's going to help you either. Because we all have moments like Esau. Man, it's right there. And you want it. But you have no idea what hangs in the balance. You have no idea what God might do through you if you surrender your appetites to Him and you live for Him fully. Man, you have no idea. Story continues in verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and he drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. He ate and he drank and the stew was gone. And so was the birthright. And his destiny was changed because of an appetite that he couldn't control. Every single day of your lives, you're going to be tempted to trade your future for something as meaningless as a bowl of soup. I mean, what's your bowl of soup? 
If you were to say, God, what am I doing right now that may impact whatever plans that you have for me for my future? I bet if you ask that, a lot of you already know the answer to that. You already know what it is. That thing that you're doing when you're all alone. That thing that you would never want anybody else to find out about. You already know. Maybe it's that person at work that keeps catching your eye. You know you shouldn't be smiling and flirting and talking the way you do, but you're married. You got kids. You say, well, it's harmless. Nothing more could ever come out of that. Then you're godlier than David. You're wiser than Solomon. You're stronger than Samson. You have to ask, is it worth trading my future for this? Is it worth trading the ultimate for the immediate? You've got to look at what's at stake. As we've learned today, there's a lot at stake. There really is a lot at stake. I'm always amazed that we have a program, Celebrate Recovery. Every Thursday, a place where God does some of His greatest work, yet so few people attend. Amazed by it. Man, don't let your destiny be changed because of an appetite that you're struggling to control. That's crazy. Now, I told you earlier that you will be tempted to believe that there is something out there. That there's someone out there that can fully satisfy your appetite. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never be hungry. And the one who believes in me will never be thirsty again. We're going to take communion. But I want you to take a moment and just kind of examine yourself. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, But let a person examine himself, and in this way, let him eat from the bread, and let him drink from the cup. So kind of have a moment with God. See if there's anything that you're doing. Anything that you're doing that's standing in the way of what God is doing. Confess it to Him. Ask for forgiveness. Then I want you to go to one of the tables that are set up. And I want you to take the bread of life. The body of Christ that was broken for your appetites. And the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Then I want you to come back to your seats.
as Derek closes us with a song.